The Advantages of Being a Woman Artist, as enumerated by the Guerrilla Girls, a band of anonymous feminist activists and artists, and the self-proclaimed conscience of the art world. Working without the pressures of success. Not having to be in shows with men. Knowing your career might pick up after you're 80. Being reassured that whatever art you make, it will be labeled feminine. Being included in revised versions of art history. Not having to undergo the embarrassment of being called a genius. This list was published on posters that appeared outside museums around New York starting in 1984. Posters that can now be found inside collections at almost every major modern art museum, and certainly in my textbooks as an art history undergrad. Which is to say, this is an outsider activist group whose humor, unassailable statistics, and insatiable tenacity has led to the kind of success that's actually allowed them to infiltrate the very institutions they criticized and continue to criticize. There's a true victory baked into the fact that their work, if not their struggle, has become victoriously mainstream. I mean, I read these advantages off of a hot pink tea towel that I purchased from the Museum of Fine Arts Boston gift shop. But success is a slippery term. What does real, meaningful change look like in a culture like ours, so fluid on the one hand and so frustratingly stagnant on the other? If you're a woman in 2020, is it still easier to get into the Met if you're naked? I had the opportunity to interview two of the founding members of the Gorilla Girls, recorded on a Zoom call with pseudonyms and their cameras turned off. And we talked about these issues, how their work and their struggle has evolved over the past 35 years, how it stayed resolutely consistent, and what, as ever, are the true advantages and disadvantages of being the conscience of an ever-fluid, ever-stagnant art world. I am Katja Kollwitz, that's my pseudonym after the great German political um, artist. And I am one of the founding uh, members of the Guerrilla Girls, and I've been involved in pretty much everything we've done from the beginning till now. And I'm Frida Kahlo, and my pseudonym, of course, is for the Mexican artist Frida Kahlo, who was, you know, uh, a real firebrand, and I identify with her. And I've, I'm a founding member of the Guerrilla Girls too, and I've been involved in just about everything the group has done. So first and foremost, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. The ability to talk to somebody who's still alive, who I studied, um, is really <laughs> exciting. Um, so thank you for still being alive. Thank you for still doing what you're doing. Um, so you take on the names of these uh, female artists as your pseudonyms to secure your anonymity. And of course, I'm partial to both of these artists, um, especially Katakulvitz. Uh, so it was really nice to be able to email with both of them <laughs> as I emailed you. Why did you pick these two artists in particular? I'm curious. Do you have any particular affinity or resonance with these artists? Well, I I picked Kowitz because um, she was a political artist. She did a lot of work about anti-war, 
war workers, uh, women of all kinds doing all kinds of things. And she didn't believe in a, a fancy, expensive art world, which, of course, the art world was a lot less fancy and expensive, you know, 100 years ago. You know, she, w she was uh, very, very political and progressive in her thinking about everything. Uh, well, I chose Frida Kahlo because I had just read the first English language biography of her just in the weeks before we started The Gorilla Girls. And a lot of the things and decisions we made early on were not the result of a lot of soul searching. They were just very quick, very reactive. And um, when we decided that we needed pseudonyms to identify ourselves primarily when we did press, uh, it just came to my mind that I would love to, um, you know, speak in some ways through the voice of Frida Kahlo. Now that was really, I mean, at the time Frida Kahlo was not so well known in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, and that biography by Hayden Herrera was, um, you know, everyone was reading and it was kind of groundbreaking. And I did it as an honorific. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I really admired how outspoken Frida Kahlo was, how she went up against um, the establishment at all odds, how she faced off the uh, the surrealists who were a bunch of guys. Um, <laughs> and uh, it just made sense for me to um, use her as a pseudonym. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful anecdote that I've heard you tell actually in a couple different spots, and I was wondering if you could quickly um, retell it here about how the name came to be. So the way the Gorilla Girls happened was um, at a certain point, it was so clear that there had to be a new kind of strategy, a more contemporary, um, you could call it an advertising strategy to convince people about the the ramp about the rampant discrimination in the art world. So our first meeting, we just called a bunch of people together and we're talking about what we're going to do. And to be honest with you, we're not really sure how the name came about. The anecdote um, that you know that we and other members have always said is that it just you know everyone says. They have an idea of how it happened, but really we don't know how it happened. But I can tell you the thinking behind it. Gorilla, uh, the freedom fighter, is fierce, and we wanted to show that we were fierce. And girls in those days, before girl power and all that kind of stuff, was a word that feminists were never supposed to use. No girl. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to show that we were different, so girl was perfect for that. What about the font? Where did that iconic Gorilla Girls font come from? Again, you know, that was really about being simple, tough, but twisting things around, you know, a disruptive headline and killer statistics. And Futura Extra Bowl Condensed is kind of uh, perfect for that because it's modern, but it's also very big, bold, and strong. And in those days, you couldn't just churn out 
uh, color posters, that costs a lot of money. I mean, we were paying for all of this by passing the hat around in our meetings, and it was expensive to make a poster in those days. Now it costs nothing, but it was a big deal then. So using black and white, we had to do that. That's all we could afford. But we got a big punch with the big Futura condensed texture bulb type. Yeah. Yeah, it's so striking. I mean, it's it's amazing how iconic that became. And, you know, of course, all origin stories are never quite as clear cut as as we like to pretend they are in the retelling. So considering that both of you are founding members of the group, um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how it's changed and how it's evolved from the mid 1980s to today, maybe both within the group and then also kind of what what the struggle that you've been taking on, how that's changed, and and have you seen progress? Well, when we started, there was a great deal of disbelief, you know, coming from um, the art world itself, from the art history establishment, from the museum establishment. They all sort of thought that, that they were part of a meritocracy, and whatever decisions that establishment, that mainstream establishment made, were absolutely the best decisions that could possibly be made. But we realized that when they excluded women and they excluded uh, artists of color, that there's no way the decisions that they made could be fair. Uh, I think there was an idea of a mainstream at that point, which, of course, has always afflicted art history. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the idea that you want to fit everything into a neat little timeline. Um, so we just wanted to be provocative and to ask some questions, you know, why do so many women go to art school and why do so many of them, you know, not get any professional opportunities and why do people of color, um, you know, have their own art worlds and their own, um, histories, you know, why is that going on? We wanted to ask questions. And at first, people would say, well, women and artists of color just aren't making the work that's part of the mainstream dialogue. I mean, they actually said that. Mm-hmm. Art, art museum directors said that. Um, and we pushed away at it to realize that their decisions were not value-free, that they were really making decisions from within uh, a power structure that they were the dominant you know, parts of. And... Um, I think what what has really changed is consciousness. I don't think anyone would make those claims anymore because they're so patently ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, what has changed is that the art world now is uh, in many ways fueled by the art market, and the art market is you know is all run by you know wealthy collectors and and the exchange of millions of dollars and you have to start looking at that and who has millions of dollars to spend on art primarily rich white males Uh, so we're asking the larger question how democratic can the art world really be when we have the same kind of um European aristocratic power structure of, you know, now it's not the kings and the queens and the emperors, it's the billionaires, you know, uh, funding the museums and buying the art and telling us what our visual history is. So I think the consciousness has changed, but the situation of the art world and the art market has, um, has become more dire. Well, this leads to the fact that there are no lack of fantastic artists out there. 
But because the art world is set up to anoint the few and push the rest aside, museums are more collecting the ones who make the most money and not collecting the other ones. And that mm. has got to change. If museums don't cast a wide net and connect the real full picture of, of wonderful art in our country, then they're just collecting the history of wealth and power. It's not actually about creativity, um, about ideas that artists push forward that change the way we all look at the world and think about things. I think it's also uh, this idea that you can tell the story of our huge culture with the voices of just a few artists. Mm -hmm. uh, because there are artists of color and women now who've sort of been adopted into the so-called, you know, canon. But they're very few, and they're the same ones over and over again. And, and I'm sure you as a historian um, realize how rich a tapestry history is. And to try mm -hmm. to tell it in a linear story without any, you know, sort of sidetracking and without a richness is a very limited uh, idea of history. And the fact that the major museums in the United States all sim have a similar collection it means that they're all telling the same story and they're, mm -hmm. they're not really telling the broad story. And I suspect that's because they're run by, by boards of trustees who are also art collectors. And today to be an art collector is also to be an art investor. And you want your, your investment to appreciate in value and you do everything you possibly can, you know, either um, consciously or unconsciously to, you know, to, to, to that end. And the art market is all about eliminating it down to the stars and uh, winners. And um, this idea that art history belongs to the people who, who win on the art market is, is really a sad idea of history. We know the most important, the most interesting parts of history are oftentimes, you know, the stories that are not told in the mainstream. Can I just say that art history is usually responsible for this um, over the beginning of art history until very recently. Now all that is changing. The whole idea of one great genius after another springing from nowhere with his incredible new ideas about art is basically a fallacy. It's not that there aren't great artists, and if you insist on calling them geniuses, fine. But the point is that every artist is part of a period of time. They have a society. They live in a world of other people doing writing, doing art, and of course the system you know, that Frida was talking about. And that whole construct has made it almost impossible to have the kind of art world that we really need to have. There's just so much value in the creative work people are doing. And it is a great time now because you don't need those gatekeepers. A lot of artists are bypassing them. Um, that doesn't excuse the museums and, and, uh, and art history teaching, especially in the lower grades from, uh, prom, you know, they, they are responsible for continuing that ridiculous, uh, construct. But let's not look past the influence of Western capitalism and all that, because art history really started out of connoisseurship, and that was all about uh, wealthy, um, you know, industrialists going all over the world, sending their so-called curators out to buy 
um, to buy symbols of Western culture, um, you know, to show their power and their prestige. Uh, so capitalism is also um, to blame here. Mm-hmm. So there's so many things that you just said that I want to respond to and, and threads that I want to pick up. But I want to actually, uh, specifically this idea that that artists are in their own contexts and the importance of recognizing kind of the fullness of an experience of an artist living within their own context and, you know, kind of doing away with this idea of creative genius and saying that, no, an artist is very much a product of their, of his or her own society and, and the, perhaps the work that came before them, etc. you know, but it's very context specific. And I want to talk about the idea, I want to know how you feel about the phrase woman artist, because we talk a lot about women artists as opposed to artists. I mean, this is something that I talked about in the Mary Cassatt episode and something that's always been a really thorny issue. Um, and you talked about how uh, in the book that it was problematic to curate an all-woman show in 1985. And you talked about the reasons in the book, how, how it was kind of a bitter lesson that people had to inevitably be kept out. And a later critic talked about the show that there was the problem of assimilating women into the prevailing art system. And this idea of all female shows, I have a personal uh, experience. Earlier this year, I was the podcast in residence at the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston's um, Women Take the Floor exhibition, which was a pretty landmark show for them. They, they culled their own collection uh, to to pull out about 150 works by women artists um, in honor of the the centennial of the 19th Amendment, and it was kind of a problematic show too, because these artists these artworks didn't really have a lot to do with each other other than they were made by women, and. I wonder, is that enough? I mean, wouldn't an artist like Carmen Herrera be better served when she's put in her own context around the other, albeit men, hard edge abstract artists that help kind of explain what she was doing as opposed to putting her up against a George O'Keefe and saying, here they are, they're both women. I mean, doesn't that almost re-marginalize them by, by drawing attention to their womanness? Is woman artist kind of a problematic phrase? I think it's problematic when it becomes a ghetto, but when it becomes um, a category of information and knowledge, it can be quite helpful because the fact is that women have been marginalized. And, you know, as a result of that, there is their own strain, their own, you know, historical story that their work tells. And uh, at the Pompidou, the Elle au Centre Pompidou, um, which was a show a number of years ago that was grudgingly okayed by the director of the Pompidou because, because it was cheap. <laughs> and they did an, a show of work from their own collection, and they basically told the history of modernism through the work of women artists. And... Um, that is a really interesting concept because these women were working oftentimes next to men, but not getting the same credit, not getting the same reward. Sure, sure. And that does manifest in their work. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a fascinating exhibition. 
And oddly enough, uh, it broke uh, attendance records. It made enough money that the Pompidou could, uh, you know, could continue past their budgetary crisis. Um, so the director sort of had to eat a little bit of crow over that. So um, I don't think that all shows of women artists are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, um, you know, until women and, and um, artists who are not white males, you know, get um, fully integrated into the so-called mainstream, I mean, we need another word for mainstream, you need those shows, and inside that history, there are many other histories lurking. You know, it's interesting. The Museum of Modern Art, um, a few years ago, for the first time, I think ever, maybe once before, year, you know, decades and decades ago, exhibited the entirety of Jacob Lawrence's Migration series, one of the great works ever done in the history of art. And um, looking at this piece all together, I personally had seen it at MoMA before half of it and at the Art Institute of Chicago, half of it, since they each own half of it. Um, and But finally all together at once. And it was so amazing and inspiring. And, you know, maybe I'm even more partial to it because it is a work that includes words and images. Um, which is what we do and what, you know, something that I'm a big fan of. Um, but I got, I walk out of that, those rooms, and I just thought, what the hell is MoMA doing with all those Picassos? Do we really need all those Picassos? So part of being aware of who artists are and their own trajectory um, is having this richer version of art and making sure that we can all be inspired by um, incredibly great work that, let's face it, wasn't up before. And about art history also, this is an aside, and we wrote a book about art history called um, The Gorilla Girl's Bedside Companion to the History mm-hmm. of Art. And when it came to those old art um, textbooks, we decided to, it kind of goes to what you're saying, we decided to go the other way. We altered them. So instead of, you know, Gardner's Art Through the Ages or Jansen's History of Art, we redid the book covers. So it said, you know, white male art through the ages and <laughs> Jansen's History of White Male Art, because that's what they were. You know, so that's the other side of this um, leaving out women or, or anybody else thing. It was almost, you know, God knows what the percent, but like probably 90 something percent for for the modern era, white male artists in those books. And, and some of them never had one of them didn't have a single woman artist at all till they put in a Gorilla Girls poster. Oh, my God. I think that was Gardner's Art Through the Ages. Well, you know, the word artist is kind of universalized, and it's been universalized to mean white men. So perhaps, you know, everyone should be identified and racialized in some way. (laughs) Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's the the most accurate, um, you know, historic kind of uh, label to use. Well, so I want to now play devil's advocate with myself. Um, 
because I actually also had an interesting experience and and just for uh, you know for my purposes right now I am focusing specifically on on women artists and not artists of color just for this question because this was my experience when I was um, when I was working for the MFA and and doing this podcast series for them and I did five episodes on five women artists in their collection and uh, as much as I kind of want to say that maybe the exhibition was a little problematic because it's plucking these artists out of their context and saying that because they're women, they must have something in common when sometimes they didn't. But I wonder if sometimes they do. And I'm curious what your take on that is, because I found that with the women that I looked at, and I I went a pretty wide swath um, I looked at Louise Bourgeois and Patty Chang and Frida Kahlo and George O'Keefe and Carmen Herrera. And there was a surprising, um, I don't know, uh, there, there's an explicit focus on bodies, on sexuality, on motherhood. I mean, I'm thinking just about Colvitz and Kahlo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, those are two artists who I very much associate with, um, you know, a- alongside their incredible strength with with motherhood and with a, a body. And I-, I found that when I was looking at female artists, that there was almost a through line of what women artists had a tendency to craft their ideas around and their work around. And to kind of to say that there is something that unites women artists that way is that a product of sexism <laughs> or or is there something that kind of draws them together in an innate almost spiritual way and and i i will say for myself i don't know if you have children i have a 14 month old now and so i've spent the last year plus recognizing that there is something deeply powerful about being a woman that I had never realized before and that there was um that that to me made feminism more precious to me rather than less by having a having a baby and kind of you know going deeper down the rabbit hole of what of what kind of womanness meant to me and so I I kind of offer you that question is is there something that does unite female artists well, yeah, I think it's wrong to talk about female artists that way. There is something, there are things that women have in common. So there are tons of artists who don't do work um, about the body. You know, there, there are ones who do and there are ones who don't. And, e- and each artist imbues it with, its own, with her own ideas. Um, but I think it's, I, th- I don't think it's, it's right to make that about women artists having something in common. Women artists do have things in common, like the discrimination they, they face, you know, the fact that they're not taking this seriously, that kind of thing. But women in our society do have a lot in common. So it's not wrong to, um, I have a, a child also, it's not wrong to feel connected to women everywhere. Um, through motherhood or through other thing, other things uh, that you care about and other things in your, your life. But to try to make a case about women artists wasn't what didn't you have to pick from work that the museum had in its collection for what you did or you just picked oh, artists yeah. you like? Yeah. Well, uh, that, well, both. I mean, I picked the artists mm-hmm. that I liked out of their collection. Out of um, their collection. And the collection yeah. is um, a very specific collection. I mean, you probably could make a case that 
uh, curators, you know, 20 and more years ago, uh, were more partial to art by women that was had motherhood and things mm-hmm. like that in it. You know, we don't know. I'm not saying we should or shouldn't, but that definitely could be at play. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that that's, that's an interesting way of, of, for me, kind of rethinking the collection that I had to choose from in the first place. Um, so a, a kind of a big, a big messy question. Are things getting better? when you uh, republished those uh, percentage of increases of women having solo shows at major museums from 1985 to 2015. I mean, the the increase was pitiful. Um, But we're in a very different cultural moment than we were even five years ago. And, And many museums are being yanked on board, you know, some kicking and screaming and some as as very much part of a road that they were already going down, maybe not quite at the speed um, that one would hope. And we're seeing a lot of changes. I mean, if you look at, at what's happened to individual curators at, at some institutions, at SFMOMA, at the Guggenheim, um, uh, curators who are being asked to step down because they're they're not progressive enough, fast enough. Is this a sign of progress? Is it a sign of optimism? How do you feel about all this? Well, the curators are an interesting case because they weren't asked to step down because they weren't progressive enough, although they probably were. They were asked to step down because employees um, complained about their behavior. And everyone who's worked in any company, in any institution, if you're a person of color, you've you've had to put up with all this crap from people, you know, from out and out harassment to small things that drive you crazy. These are these are real issues. And this is coming from the bottom up. That particular kind of thing is coming from the bottom up. But also in museums, there are curators who have who have long been trying to push things forward and don't and don't have that old-fashioned idea of what art history is and it is a time now when they can actually do things that they were never you know were always pushing the rock up the hill trying to do they are able to do that so it is a time now where more and more that where museums are playing catch-up and from the top, they have to approve this kind of stuff. It can't just be, you know, um, one um, Cy Twombly show every five years. I mean, seriously? You know, that's kind of where they were at, you know? Um, there's been a lot of fantastic shows. And every time there are those shows, you find artists who you um you always wanted to see more of in museums, and and their work is just incredible. So I always look at it from that point of view. Things are a little bit better now. It's fantastic that there's been all this protest and complaints about what the museum is showing. Not only the system, you know, mm-hmm. of of uh, billionaires controlling museums. That is an is an equal problem, and also as as Frida said, influences what is showing. But there's something else going on too. Um, we're seeing a lot of great work in museums, and museums are collecting it um, when when they weren't doing that before. Also, we're in a world now where 
artists can get their work out. You know, they may not get the stamp of approval from the museum, the gatekeeper, you know. Don't spend your life waiting for the gatekeepers to appreciate you. A lot of artists aren't doing that. They're doing their own things. They're putting on their own shows. They're out um, on the Internet. You know, street art is the most popular art in the United States and mm. has huge amount of viewers. Um, if you, you know, it's like the top hashtag that has the word, word art in it. And that's all about that. That's always been about that. Don't wait for someone to tell you, you know, you're you're worth it as an artist. Go out and put your stuff up and let people yeah. see it. And that is the story of the Gorilla Girls. That's what we did. We didn't we didn't wait for um, a museum to want to have our posters. You know, that came 20 years later. We had something to say, and our whole idea. Uh, was to say it directly to people. That's something that's a lot easier to do now, and so many people are doing it, and they're and they're reaching a lot of people with it. Yeah. Well, you're talking to a guerrilla art historian, so <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate yeah, you I saying that. But also, you know, the structure of museums has changed somewhat. Mm -hmm. um, the most museums used to be free. Um, now they're quite expensive to go to. They used to be purely educational, not purely, but they used to be primarily educational um, institutions, repositories for culture. Um, and um, they really have become more about a kind of entre entrepreneurial element of the art world. Um, and they, they're getting fancier and bigger. And for example, the Museum of Modern Art will take $40 million donations to build two new galleries, but they can't find enough money to keep their education department employed during oh, the pandemic. Yeah. I know. Um, I mean, just think about what that means. Yeah. Uh, the fact that uh, Richard Armstrong at the Guggenheim earns $1.4 million a year when the uh, people working in the gift shop and the, uh, you know, and guarding the, the artwork, you know, barely make more than minimum wage. Um, that is really imitating the um, the corporate the corporate uh, model that has created income inequality. So museums have really become instruments of the economy in a, in in a way that uh, I'm not sure whether it was conscious. It's maybe just snuck up on it, on them, but that's that's a problem. And as they try to be more democratic but they, they operate on this economic model of bigger, better, uh, fancier, uh, let's, raise the, let's raise the admission, and when we have a hard time, let's just fire everyone or, or lay them off. Um, that, you know, that, that really doesn't look good. Mm -hmm. So right now, uh, I'm planning an episode on Carrie Mae Weems, uh, and this is why this interview actually dovetails so nicely, because I'm focusing specifically on her, her photo series, Not Mayonnaise Type, from 1997, um, and that explicitly focuses on who has been excluded from the canon, specifically black women. And, you know, conversations about the canon itself can be both... Uh, necessarily nuanced and also pretty straightforward. You know, people are included at the expense of people who are excluded. Um, that said, I have to be honest, I'm, and I'm kind of horrified by this, I get significantly fewer downloads of my podcast episodes that are on women 
and minority artists, with the exception of Frida Kahlo and Georgia O'Keeffe. But otherwise, fewer people want to hear and learn about artists that they don't already know about. Um, you know, I'm just an independent podcast. I don't have payroll. I don't have any museum board to answer to. What do we do? What do we do about this? Because, and I only bring that up because it's like you said, I mean, it's very true. Museums are businesses. They are part of the economic world and they need to bring people in the door. And I'm curious, how do we get people more excited about art that they are not as familiar with, specifically artists of color, women artists, indigenous artists, you know, who don't fall kind of neatly in the canon and they think that they're quote unquote, like smarter for having learned about them? When museums show people like that, they often get a huger audience than for anything else. I mean, if you Mm. look at top attendance, besides, you know, Van Gogh, etc., um, which you'll, I used to tell every curator I knew, if you're going to do a show about, you know, um, conceptual art in Brazil, you should call it conceptual art in Brazil and Van Gogh, if you want people to come see it, you know. <laughs> so there is that. See, I think it's less about, I, th- I think the problem is they've learned about, you know, 10 artists in school because our art education really sucks. It's so terrible. Mm -hmm. And that's what they know about. And they do like those artists. And why shouldn't you? The problem is um, the art world presents art like you don't know enough to just look at something. You don't know enough to learn about something. You know, the the audience is um, is looked down on. Um, mm-hmm. especially the way high schools teach art and, and other things like that. So this all plays into it. It's not just about getting less for somebody, get less viewers for someone uh, they don't know. I mean, that's a natural thing, but it's mm-hmm. not always true. If you show in a museum an artist who uh, people, um, maybe many people don't know, it can be a huge crowd draw. I mean, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art had a uh, show of art from Latin America. It was jammed every day, much more than other shows, you know. So I, I don't, I don't think that's the right way to look at it. It's more that people feel, um, ooh, they feel looked down on by the fancy art world. We got to change yeah. that because yeah. they have people, artists want viewers, you know, museums want viewers. There's another way to talk about art. So I actually, I, I want to ask you because um, in one of the footnotes in your books or one of the little descriptions, uh, you said that whenever you put up new posters, you would lurk on streets nearby to overhear what people <laughs> had to say. And I'm curious, I mean, speaking of audiences, what did they say? What was their reaction? Well, um, of course, everyone thought they knew who we were, that one of their friends was a gorilla girl. (laughs) It's always fun to find out how wrong they always were. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, well, we wanted to do something that was unforgettable, and we always wanted to change minds. And oftentimes that means figuring out how to talk to someone who doesn't agree with you. How do you make a statement that they will pay attention to and that that will challenge them? And... um, we always kind of used humor that way because we found that if we said something funny that would make someone who disagreed with us laugh, well, we had a minute inside their brain. 
and yeah. we could like tweak around there. So uh, there is an audience out there for you know unconventional ways of looking at things and new ways of looking at things, but I think it has to pre be presented in a way that cannot be ignored, mm -hmm. and that it cannot be forgotten, and that can never go back. Uh, and that's the challenge. Uh, oftentimes, art history just sits there on the table, you know, in a book, yeah. <laughs> and it tries to be so reasonable and so logical, and it builds its points so carefully that mm -hmm. you know you fall asleep by the end. Of, <laughs> by the end of reading the paper, we always thought when we wanted our book, the bedside companion to the history of Western art, to be something that you would read in the bathroom and you'd sit down and read it all at once. You couldn't put it down. We tried to make it everything that an art history book is not and make it compelling. So um, I think that that's the challenge when you have a new message um, is how do you get it out? How do you get people to listen to it? You have to present it in such a way that it affects them. And I think that came from our listening to people talk about our work. Mm -hmm. It was hugely exciting for, um, for artists, I have to say and hugely annoying for white male artists and curators and all the people who weren't doing um, what they should have, what they eventually did start doing a little bit better. But also, you know, in your podcast, um, the way you ask people, you know, just ask, start by asking people about these different things, that's really a great way to go. I mean, um, I had, uh, an, an elderly friend, you know, years ago, who would say to me, um, "I just don't get this, you know, contemporary art." And I and I would say to her, "Art is a product of its own time. You wouldn't try you wouldn't try to understand um, quantum physics without studying it. If you want to understand art, you have to see where it's been and where it's going. And but I promise you that." If you come with me to any museum in one hour, you will never feel that way again. You just need a way in and a little bit of information. And that's kind of what, you know, when you're interacting with those people, that's kind of, that's kind of what your podcast is doing, no? Oh, oh yeah, no, and, and people have been really, really grateful. Both people in the galleries and, and listeners have said that, that hearing people talk about art and be coaxed into looking and having their reactions validated was actually very validating for the listeners who also, you know, saw what, God, that an Ansel Adams looked like a hoodsy cup, um, you know, that kind of contrast of dark and light or that a Mondrian looked like a computer screen. I mean, you know, people's descriptions of it that were so, you know, just human and not art jargony was very uh it just it it made them feel comfortable seeing what they saw so that then they can really think about what they're looking at um and so that's always been it was kind of you know same with origin stories it was kind of an accident that it turned out that way but it's really become a, a kind of a key part of the show you know one thing um that we haven't talked about i just very quickly like to mention is yeah. that um i think one of the things I'm most proud of is how we've kind of reinvented a model for how artists can live. Uh, you know, most artists have this idea that to be professional, you have to find a gallery and then you find, um, you know, rich collectors and then your work goes up and up in price. And the only way 
that kind of, it's, it, there's never a souci d'estime, it's always a souci d'argent. Um, and that that's the only way uh, you can measure success as an artist. We completely sidestep that. We sell t-shirts, we sell books, we sell posters, we do all kinds of stuff. Everyone who owns a portfolio of our work has exactly the same thing. No one owns anything unique. Um, and we figured out a way to um, broaden the audience, empower the audience, rather than always play to the top. And to this old idea that there are five or six tastemakers in the art world and you have to get your money through them. Um, you know, all of that is based on, uh, you know, on, on actually Trumpian values. The art world has been run on a lot of Trumpian values for a long time, although it would never admit it. You yeah. know, all the money at the top, the exploitation at the bottom, nothing in the middle unless, you're unless you teach. And the system is, you know, is based on the, you know, handing off of a lot of money, avoiding paying taxes, you know, smuggling, insider trading, um, you know, all kinds of nefarious dark corners of the art market. And we have really sidestepped that. We never went through the, the gallery system. You know, we actually went through more the, the, the art school and uh, knowledge route where we were producing knowledge. It was recognized in the academy, you know, in, in schools. And um, we came in sideways, and I'm really proud of that. And I wish that more artists uh, could find that sort of liberty rather than feeling that even if they do social practice work, that they have to be collected by a certain number of people and written about by certain uh, critics. You know, we sidestepped that and really invented the world and the model that we wanted to live in where we, we aren't beholding to anybody um, and there aren't strings attached. Yeah. Okay, I think that's it, guys. Thank you both so much for your time. It was actually, this was a great conversation. I don't know how you're ever going to edit all this stuff, all these words, but oh my God. No, I'll figure it out. Um, no, but I, I really appreciate it. I mean, I, you know, you guys, you <laughs> you have been incredibly inspirational to, to me as both an art historian and a woman and, and a, an independent podcaster. Um, <laughs> And so thank you again for, for the time and for doing what you're doing because it's, it's hard and it's brave. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. You can follow the Gorilla Girls all over social media at Gorilla Girls on Twitter and Instagram and on their website, GorillaGirls.com. And be sure to pick up their new book, a retrospective of their work since the beginning, called Gorilla Girls, The Art of Behaving Badly, available wherever fine, badass books are sold. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.